Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Jonathan Pelson. He has a long history in the telecom industry uh, from which he may draw in our discussion of his new book, Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We Are Fighting Back. Welcome, Jonathan. Nice to be here, Mark. Uh, Now, you go back in time, but the book opens with a, a more immediate situation. You begin with China's response to the COVID outbreak. Any, anything instantly that you would want to say about that uh, to set the stage for, for the, longer, the longer history that you go into in later pages? Sure. The important thing about what happened with the COVID crisis is that the world started to realize that even though we've been interdependent uh, and, and a lot of countries are highly dependent on China for supplies of, of everything, When we started to find problems getting masks and medicines during the crisis, because they were all sourced from China, and China either couldn't or wouldn't provide them, Hmm. people started to say, all right, what else are we counting on China for, and and how important is that? And, And I think that was one of the awakenings that you have to be careful who it is that you're relying on for anything that's strategic or of national security importance. Uh, a quick technical question for us, uh, I include myself, among the dummies. What is 5G? Now, that's, that's an important question because it's not, even though it's numbered in sequence 1G through 5G, it's not really the next in a series. 1G, first generation wireless, is the first cell phone technology that came out in the 80s. It was an analog basic phone service. 2G allowed you to send text messaging. It was digital. 3G, third generation, is where you could start to get on the internet. And 4G, which came out about 10 years ago, uh, also called LTE, was where you could start to do video conferencing. And it was kind of an always-on internet experience on your phone, which was much better uh, activity through, uh, through a smartphone, through a wireless device. 5G is not the, the next in the stage. 5G really is a, is a bigger break. E- even though you hear people say, well, 5G is a thousand times faster than 4G. At first, it's not true, but it doesn't matter. What 5G really does is it enables this Internet of Things, where instead of connecting a thousand cell phones in an area, 5G will let you connect a hundred thousand. And the point is, they're not cell phones anymore. It's sensors, it's your thermostat, it's every sprinkler head in a lawn's sprinkler system. 
It's every device uh, in a factory. You may have 10,000 different sensors wirelessly deployed to every machine and every part of the machine so that you can use sophisticated automated technology to run a factory or to run a port, uh, to run a traffic network for a community, for a city. All of this is being enabled by 5G. So it may be faster than 4G, but that's, that's almost besides the point. It's just designed differently to allow billions of connections in very quick response time. So you can control an automated car, uh, a, a self-driving car, for example. Uh, that's really what 5G is about. And, and so it's not about better cell phone service. It's about changing the way life is, is lived. Okay, let's go back. Uh, let's go back in time. Uh, what did you see in Beijing when you were there in the 90s? Well, you had a country that was really not capable of making much of, of use. And that was the refrain I heard from business executives everywhere, like, well, let's not worry about them. We have to transfer technology to China to build stuff there. But not exactly worried about China being able to compete with the likes of Bell Laboratories. They can't make a radio. They can't make a coffee pot. That's one of the stories I tell in the book. Yeah. Phillips couldn't get them to make a, a working coffee pot for them. And uh, I can't tell you how many people said, we didn't like transferring tech to them, but they certainly weren't going to be a threat to Nortel or Motorola or Bell Labs, all of which are out of business now. <laughs> <laughs> and when you were there, uh, did you did you sort of share that that confidence that well we can we can give them these lower level technologies and they won't grow at the rate they won't develop advance at the rate we are I mean we, we've got the best in the world and they've just they're 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 still largely stuck in in this old communist system that we know can't compete with capitalism. How did, I mean, well, well, your, your personal opinion, did you see funny, it? You know, when, when I was there, here, here's the thing that I'm, I'm hardly the only one to, to feel this way, but I was hoping they would. You know, when, when you visited any country, you would hope that they would raise their level of, of living, their standard of living, their quality of life. And China, which was, you know, then, of course, uh, a communist country, my thought was once they've seen the quality that free markets bring to them, the, the ability to choose what to build, where to work, how to make something, you know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've tasted the freedom in business mm -hmm. of free markets? And so I thought it was only a good thing. If they can get the technology, if they can start to become rich in China, they can't keep them locked down under the political tyranny of communism. It's all going to break loose. And, and that was the whole thinking when they were allowed into the World Trade Organization. Everyone said, just liberalize their economy and the politics will follow. It's only going to be good. That, and, really and is we, the, we that, that really is the liberal faith, right? The old liberal faith. And again, it's not a bad faith. Open up an economy. People get a taste of freedom. And it will spread over into social, the social, political realms. Uh, I guess with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
that optimism was easy to embrace, yes? I mean, did, when you were in China, did the shadow of the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, fall pretty heavily? Yeah, pe people saw, you know, it, it was obviously very different situations. Both were authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. Soviet Union collapsed under economic weight. They were they were broke. And uh, and that was it was good to have the, the wall come down, bring freedom to hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm. China, by having a, a free market, really was in a different situation. It seemed like it would be there wouldn't be a need for the wall to come down. They would just gracefully move into a, a liberal society where you know, the, the idea that you could have technology, uh, the Internet, which was just becoming a big deal, pervasive in a society and have it not lead to greater freedom. I don't think anyone considered that possibility, that it would be the opposite, that that technology yeah. would be used to oppress and suppress the people. And this was mainly uh, the big companies going in there, not the U.S. government in the 90s. When how, how involved was the U.S. government in this sort of economic opening up and trading and sharing? You know, they, at least for, for me, I was working for the the biggest telecom equipment maker in the world at the time, Lucent, which was the AT&T spinoff, the equipment spinoff. And um, certainly the America's flagship company in this space. And we did not, at least I didn't see a lot of involvement in the U.S. government. Yeah. I mean, the closest I think we came to that was uh, that some of the senior people that we were dealing with in countries like uh, Tsingdao, among others, the leaders there were also very important party members, and one of them even on the Politburo of the CCP, Chinese Communist Party. And so I had a couple of reports actually in researching the book of the CIA approaching executives and saying, would you mind debriefing us after your meetings with these people? And uh, at least what they told me, the, the executives was, I did not want to get involved in that where I was in China talking to senior people and reading out to the CIA about it. So they... Um, yeah. At least, as they told me, they, they took a pass on that and did not get really involved much with, with the government. Uh, let, let me intervene just for a moment and tell our listeners that in the book, you have many vignettes, episodes of the visitors, you know, from American companies with their sometimes odd encounters with surveillance in these other companies. And, and I'm, I'll, I'll leave that as a, as a teaser for our listeners, but they're, they're, not only is it is it ominous? But it's also entertaining uh, in the way you you write about it. Now let, let's go back uh, e even further. First of all, how was wireless born? That's question one. And next, what was the infamous McKinsey study that you <laughs> talk about? So for, first, the wireless question: How did that begin? Well, it's funny. Um, there's there's been uh, wireless efforts to to kind of give car phones of one sort or another. Uh, for decades, but in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, Bell Labs, and, and I have to point out, because people have never heard of Bell Labs, certainly younger people, this is a, the laboratory, AT&T's research division, founded by Alexander Graham Bell. That's where the word Bell comes from. It's not from a telephone bell. Hmm. Uh, they invented the transistor, stereo, solar panels, lasers, fiber optics, communication satellites. They had... Uh, many Nobel laureates in physics and math working there. This was the world's greatest research institution. Mm -hmm. 
60s, 70s, they invented a much better way of doing wireless communications. It's kind of honeycomb shape where they put a cell site in the middle of each sector, connect them back to the phone network. And your car phone at the time really worked like a telephone. And you didn't need to go through an operator. You didn't have to do all sorts of, uh, you know, the quality got good. So this, about 1980, AT&T had to decide, okay, are we going to really roll this out? We've invented this really cool thing. And they brought in McKinsey, who's the, the world's great consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And they evaluated the potential for cell phones. And they said, there is no market future for this. They said, maximum 0.5% penetration of the market. And uh, the number was 976,000 mobile users by the year 2000. Uh, the actual number was not just under a million; it was just under a billion by year two thousand. <laughs> uh, but all- but now, now, John, these these were the smartest men in in the smartest consultants in the world, correct? <laughs> well, that's right. You know, Ivy League. Uh, you know, super super successful. They had a track record. How in the world did such high IQ people end up being so phenomenally wrong? Yeah, these were not these were not dummies. The problem is when you're trying to forecast a transformational technology's growth by asking the users, and that's what McKinsey did. They did very rigorous uh, surveying, and they they asked people, you know, are you interested in using this? The problem is, you know, people say Henry Ford said, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have wanted faster horses. Yeah, uh, I don't think he actually said that, but it's a great quote anyway. Yeah. Uh, you can't ask someone about whether they want a technology that they've never contemplated, that even the inventors don't quite know what the future holds. And what, what McKinsey came back and said is they're quite happy with pagers and pay phones. Uh, there's no need that we can find for a phone that you actually carry with you. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I spoke to Marty Cooper, and he invented the handheld cell phone at, at Motorola. Uh, he's uh, in his 90s now, still sharp as a tack. What he told me, I showed him the McKinsey study, which is legendary. I have an actual copy of it, the deck here. People think it didn't really exist, but I have it. It's, it's real. And Marty said what McKinsey didn't get was that wired phones connect place to a place. Cell phones connect a person to a person. It's a completely different business. Mm-hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. And it was just hard to envision that, I guess. And you, you actually refer at one point to a certain laziness that, use the word laziness, set in among uh, people maybe after the first rush of... Uh, these extraordinary advances, uh, do people get, even these smart tech guys, they get grooved in a certain way? Well, here's the problem. You had AT&T at the time. It was the world's biggest company. It included all, you know, what's now Verizon and uh, all the other regional companies. We're all part of the same company. 
and they were not they were not earning their money based on uh, I'll put it this way the amount of money they could make was set by the government they were a regulated monopoly and they would make a, about a 14% return on however much they invested in their infrastructure so there was no incentive financially to commercialize this stuff bell labs invented so much fantastic stuff that they never commercialized they never made money off of because there was no urgency around it so you know breaking up that great company was terrible in some ways but you had to unleash those forces to really innovate and turn things loose in the market and at, until you know the 90s or so when they started splitting the company up uh, there really wasn't a, uh, a financial incentive to, to to take these great inventions and bring them to the world now we had AT&T uh, Bell Labs, uh, you know, Lucent, and, and you, you go into the history of those organizations, the uh, relevant history, and, and the individuals as well. Uh, China then had Huawei. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. Uh, what is the history of Huawei? When did it begin? Who started it? Well, it was founded by a guy named uh, Ren Zhongfei, who was a army officer. He was not a senior guy in the People's Liberation Army. Uh, and he was not a terribly successful businessman. He had done a couple ventures and he set up this company to originally import fire alarms from Hong Kong into the mainland. Hmm. And then he started importing in the mid 90s, late 90s, these uh, something called a PBX. It's a small switch that you put into an office building so that, you know, when, you, when a phone can dial another phone in the office with four digits, it's because there's a small local switch in that building. He was importing those uh, from um, Mitel uh, and selling them into China. And then the head of Mitel discovered that they were actually making their own switches after a while, their own Mitel switches. And uh, he told me that I just decided rather join him if, rather than fight him. And he started just selling the chipsets, the microchips used for those switches because he figured they were going to make them and kind of knock them off anyway. They went from that to being a $120 billion a year equipment maker in in very short period of time. It's unprecedented. You get companies that they call hyperscalers like Google that can grow because they're not bending metal and putting things in boxes and shipping them. They're doing mm -hmm. things that's much easier to scale. Huawei is an old school company in the respect that they're doing R&D. They're building stuff. They have to install it. It's extraordinary to grow that fast. And really the way they grew, people say that they're tied to the government. Of course they're tied to the government. Every technology firm is tied to its host country's government, and, and it should be. But the government was funding them. And this was a revelation mark I had when I was writing the book. Yeah. I originally started, started out to write about how the Chinese government had helped Huawei become the world champion in telecom equipment. And by the time I was done, I realized I had the thesis backwards. Huawei was being used to help China extend its power and influence around the world. It, it was a, a means of extending surveillance and and even suppression the way China does it at home. They wanted to be able to do that around the world. And China, the government put, according to the Wall Street Journal, $75 billion 
into Huawei to help them do that. And that's enough money to bankrupt all of their competitors. And while this was going on, didn't some of the technology companies in the United States and Europe say, whoa, 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 we've got some, some real problems here. Uh, this isn't capitalism. This isn't ordinary competition. We are soon going to be competing with another technology company and a nation, a government as well. Did anyone sound the alarm about this uh, uh, years ago? I, if, if they did, I didn't hear it. Here's what, here's what happened. The companies that buy the equipment, companies like Verizon or T-Mobile or, or you know, the service providers that run networks, they buy their equipment from companies that, that make the telecom gear. They said, look, we can buy this stuff so cheap from Huawei. They'll put out a bid, and a company will bid a uh, billion dollars to equip them with cell towers and switches and all that. And Huawei will come in and say, a billion, we'll do it for $300 million. And, 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 so and, and Huawei can do that because it has the Chinese government behind them? Exactly. People would say, well, they're making it in China, their labor is cheaper. Everyone was making it in China. Everyone had the same scientists in China, the same factories in China. They were all down the street. So they should have been within pennies of each other. In, in the prices. And you might have a company bid a billion, someone else bids 920 million, they really want the, the deal. And someone bids a billion one because they think their stuff works better. That's all good. If you're coming in at half price, that means you're not even covering your costs to make the stuff. And I have multiple accounts in, in the book about bids that didn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, Huawei giving the gear away to get in. And so the big carriers, they weren't unhappy about Huawei. They were delighted all over the world, everywhere except the U.S., where we, we got, the government kept them out. But Africa is entirely Huawei, Latin America, Eastern Europe, a lot of Asia. And Europe, Western Europe, was going entirely Huawei until about two years ago. Everyone was on board with it. The equipment makers, here's how twisted it gets, Mark. When, when uh, Sweden, the home of Ericsson, the biggest competitor to Huawei, when Sweden said they were going to ban Huawei equipment, the head of Ericsson, the CEO, pleaded with his own government to not ban them from his country. And the story was, and I've read these accounts, that he even threatened to pull Ericsson out of Sweden if they did, because he sells so much gear into the Chinese market. Yeah. And they threatened, and they've since followed up just in the last few weeks, to ban Ericsson gear in China, which is a much bigger market. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you go into some of the geopolitical action uh, by China, where it can coordinate its technological expansion with, again, uh, geopolitical power, uh, such as the Middle East. How did China uh, use technology to, to build power or the threat of political power in the Middle East? Well, China has, first off, I'm, I'm going to answer a slightly different question that, that was one of the things that stunned me. Uh, China was able to get, um, I think, some serious power in the United States itself. I said they weren't able to sell into the U.S., and I spoke to uh, 
a counter intel officer at the FBI, and I said, you know, look, they're they're only putting these things in their cell towers from Huawei in small rural areas. They can't seem to get you know, AT&T or Sprint accounts. And he said, no, look where Huawei has installed in small rural areas in the U.S. They're overlooking every nuclear missile base in the country, every special operations base, mm-hmm. the, the, the nuclear sub base. It's all served by Huawei cellular gear. Uh, they showed up to these small family-owned companies because AT&T is not out in, in Montana, in Great Falls, Montana. They don't want to serve that. So some small company that's got a dozen cell sites does it. Huawei shows up, says, here, we'll give you our gear for 10 cents on the dollar. And they say, we'll take it. So so the American companies, they, they say, well, we're not going to make a lot of money in these areas. So they overlook them. Huawei does it because, again, it's it's being bankrolled. That, that's right. There's the the uh, counter intel officer said when he met with other equipment makers from the Western companies and said, "What do you think of the deal that the company got?" They said the sun would run out of fuel before we made our money back if we tried to sell it at that price. Yeah. And we're making our gear in the same city that Huawei makes their gear. We're using the same workers, the same factories. And and they don't but, really want to challenge China because. They see the Chinese market as necessary to their bottom line. They, um, it, it really is con- conflicted because the equipment makers want to sell into China. It's the biggest market. China grew more in the '90s, the telecom market, than the rest of the world combined. Hmm. Uh, one of the companies I used to sell to in China, China Mobile, has 940 million cellular subscribers. So the companies like Nokia and Ericsson uh, want to sell into China. And so they're not making a big stink about what Huawei's doing to the world. Yeah. What, what did Huawei do to Cisco? You tell that story. <laughs> well, the court case uh, alleged that Huawei had ripped off the Cisco router and they demonstrated that the uh, even down to the manual that accompanies it, the Chinese one had the exact same typos in it as the Cisco <laughs> manual. You know, and, and oh, when, my goodness. It, it was so obvious. And, you know, when, it, when a coder, <clears throat> software code in a, in a router has actual comments embedded in it from the, the people that are writing the code. And you would see in supposedly a Huawei router software code saying, dude, this is really gnarly. I think I figured out how to solve it. <laughs> like, yeah, it sounds a little more West Coast to me, but... Mm-hmm. They flew over, Cisco did, to meet with Huawei's leadership, to meet with Mr. Ren, the chairman, the founder, showed him the typos that were identical, and he said, coincidence. We just, we just made the same typos you guys did. We did not rip this off. Now, they settled, and that's how Huawei handles it. Yeah. They don't admit to fault. They don't fight it because they can't. They just settle quietly, but they destroyed Cisco's business and routers. Hmm. How has the process of brain drain worked in this situation? Huawei hired, when Norton went out of business, significantly because of Huawei, all their top scientists, and they were brilliant wireless scientists, well, many of them went over to Huawei. Uh, There was nowhere left for them to work. And uh, Bell Labs when the wheels came off, some of the top people I worked with, really brilliant scientists, ended up at Huawei. 
a lot of them not for long because it was an awful experience they found. And I interviewed some of them for the book, but they, they talked about how half their job was just being debriefed by teams of Huawei engineers who would ask them about everything they had ever worked on mm-hmm. and, how, and how it worked. Uh, there is a, a, a motif in the book of these, these top American companies simply don't have the ethic to deal with a, a company like Huawei. And one example that struck out with me was the Lucent Golf Course. What was that? I mean, what, what, what was, tell us what Lucent was again, and then tell us about the golf course episode. So Lucent was AT&T's spun-off equipment division. Became the world's largest telecom equipment maker through the 90s to about 2000 or so. Included Bell Laboratories, world's top research lab. And uh, the CEO of Lucent wanted to build a golf course. He bought the estate of James Cox Brady, very wealthy financier whose son, Nick Brady, was Reagan's treasury secretary. He bought this mansion, 64-room mansion, I think it was, and all these acres of land. And he had his real estate team turning it into a golf course that would include him and 18 CEOs of related companies, so customers. This was going to be a marketing push, supposedly. And they built this gorgeous course and they told him, you know, this is now up 40 million, 50, 60 million dollars. The company's starting to hit tough times. And he made it clear, I want my golf course. Hmm. At that time, through the late 90s, Huawei was building research centers, built its first uh, Indian software center and first centers in the US. That's what they were doing with their money. And by the time uh, they were finishing the, the course and rolling the greens to make it ready for play, <clears throat> Lucent had turned off the sprinklers at their headquarters because they couldn't afford to cut the lawns. They were trying to send a message that we're, we're going broke, running out of cash, but they still had that golf course underway. <laughs> uh, final question, John. Uh, are, are many of our top national politicians uh, somehow compromised by connections with Huawei? Well, actually, two-part question. That's one question. And do you see forces in D.C. in both parties, or one party, lining up to do real battle on this issue? Well, so the answer is yes to both of those. It is amazing who Huawei is able to co-opt to work for them. Uh, Now, you'll have someone will write the cybersecurity protocol to keep America safe, the chief cyber person at Homeland Security, who's now the chief cyber guy for Huawei. (laughs) You know, it it dumbfounds me. You'll have the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who opens the company to help Huawei crack the U.S. market. Uh, I mean, in Europe, you had Tony Blair, uh, I'm sorry, Dave Cameron, um, who... uh, I should be clear on that, um, who represented China for Belt and Road months out of office from being the head of the country, the, the prime minister. So there's there's it's disturbing to see. And this is not like a lawyer who has to represent a client no matter what. 
These people are putting their own names out there. Lawyers don't say, trust me, look at what I've done for the country, my client's innocent. These people are saying, trust me, I'm a four-star admiral, I've done these great things for America, and I assure you that this company has no ill will to America. You had the Secretary of the Navy go work for, for Huawei on one of their boards uh, for the U.S. division. Uh, this, is, this is disturbing. Now, what changed, there, there's a quote in the book, a European leader who said to me, we all hate Trump, but secretly we love what he's doing about China. Yeah. And that sums up, you know, sometimes it takes someone who's untethered from the political sensibilities that everyone else is following. And for whatever reason, you know, whether Trump did it because he sensed the danger from China or because he was just trying to do a tariff protection, which I think was not a valid argument, you know, for, for a trading partner, let them dump their stuff, take it cheap, that's fine. But whatever his reason was, that seemed to start things and it's bipartisan. Biden has been fully on board with this. And there's very few things where you have those two sides in agreement that now is the time to do something. And we've drawn a firm line and now Europe has come on board and we've been playing very tough with with China in general and Huawei in particular, and with great effect. Yeah. Uh, I want to mention that the latter parts of the book do talk about how we are fighting back. And as you can see in the title, but the book is Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We're Fighting Back. Uh, Jonathan Pelson, thank you for joining us. Mark, it was great being here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. Thank you.